Richard. I'm one of the, the elders here, and it's a, my pleasure to be able to come and share with you God's Word today in um, a very compelling series of relentless love. You know, if we needed a time to redefine what love is, it's now, isn't it? Where it all seems to be sentiment and no commitment. You know, um, the world today, as you would see, is um, and no light, no doubt, in light of recent um, trials, to say that the belief still is is that if the feelings are no longer there, your commitments don't have to be there either. So people move on. But let us be encouraged by the fact that we have a higher standard and we are learning that love is not just what happens in the emotional realm but happens within our commitments as well and how we solidify that. So I want to take time to maybe read the word um, to you now from the ESV standard, take some time to pray and then dive in and... um, see what it reveals to us. So again, kind of following on um, from last week from Felix, the hot on, um, it's a new section, but it's, it's kind of building the tension up of what is happening in terms of Hosea making his plea to Israel about where they are and where they need to be. So let me read from um, Hosea 7, verse 8, to the end of the chapter. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove. Silly and without sense. Call into Egypt, go into Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the reports made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their hearts, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Again, we feast upon it, dear Lord, as, as those, dear Lord God, who know their Father, we're in need, dear Lord Father, of such things, that our spirits may be stirred, our spirits may be fed, that we, dear Lord God, may do um, your will 
as we learn it, Lord God, that we would do as that which Paul said, instructed us, that we would know your good and your perfect will for our lives. So, Lord, as we look at this, Lord Father, we are aware that it's an ancient text, but, Father, we are aware that, Lord, even as an ancient text, Father, we, we, we believe it speaks to us, even as, dear Lord God, the modern historians say to us today that those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. So such it is, dear Lord God, that your word is written not just for the times in which it originally was, was there, Lord God, but for us even now. So, Lord, let us remember this. Let us put it to our hearts, dear Lord God, that these are not, this is not a remote issue, dear Lord God. This is the issue of all of us who have ever tried to follow you. So, Lord, give us strength to receive that which you have for us today. Give us grace. Give me grace, dear Lord, even to communicate this, Lord, according to your will. So have your way with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what we have here is, like with last week, is a series of similes. What are you like, is the expression, isn't it, that some people say. But what is the intent here? Is the intent to offend or embarrass? The thing about using similes is sometimes there are ways in which we feel where there's things we're trying to represent that are hard to do by just referring to the things themselves. Sometimes we have to use pictures of other things in order to better describe a situation. Within the context of Hosea's reconstruction of the Lord's relationship with, it, with Israel being compared or likened to a marriage, that itself is a simile. I'm married to you. And it's one that obviously follows all the way through the Bible, right to the very conclusion of it, that God comes back for his bride. So it's one that we need to obviously pay attention to. And obviously marriages being, again, without a correct view of marriage, we will not be able to grasp this. If marriage is merely sentimentalism of how I feel about somebody at a given time as opposed to our commitments, then we won't get this. This is a hard-hitting chapter. As they talk, it would seem that it's more likely that if somebody heard this, their spouse are more likely to get into a deeper rage than to be soothed, to be compared to a flattering bird going around all over the place. Imagine you saying that to your missus. You know, you're like a, you know, flitting around between Zara and Oasis and all the rest of it. That's what you're like. Or you're like a half-baked loaf, you know, You start to get the point, isn't it? It's difficult. But at this point, I want to maybe, as way of introduction, say that there's something about the biblical use of irony. In other words, the Bible itself understands that there's a place for comedy when it tries to liken what God sees of our lives. Not because he's laughing at us, but because he wants us to be reawoken to what we are doing. And again, it's interesting that 
comedy, even in our own lives, in our modern life, in particular stand-up comedy, that takes heartfelt issues that are sacredly held but deeply buried under politically correct manners, are brought to the surface and exposed so often with the foolishness that accompanies it. Sacredly held beliefs. But comedy has a way of disarming us. When we look at it and we're able to see the foolishness that we do and the way in which we do it, that we can suddenly go, yeah, that is pretty funny. That is pretty silly for me to think that way. And so it is that these things are used to provoke Israel into action. God doesn't want to embarrass them. God doesn't want to offend them. But he does want to provoke them into doing something different. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text and start looking at what God is likening Israel to and to, again, us as his people even today. What are we like? Well, verse 8 tells us that we're like a mixed up. We're mixed up with the people. There is a sense here with a loss of identity. We want to be like everybody else. I want you to excuse me here as I, I, get, I, I jump to maybe a, some, a, a movie reference, maybe to help us. Again, looking at superhero movies in particular, as they're particularly popular here, I want to call to your mind, if you have seen it, Superman 2 and Spider-Man 2. What do they have in common? There's an interesting correlation to the point being made here because in these two movies, both Clark Kent and Peter Parker both get their wish to put aside their superhero personas in order to take up an ordinary life. Just in case for the ladies who don't get it, we can think of Edward the Ape, the king who abdicated for Mrs. Simpson. That whole idea of, I want to give up a special life in order to take up a more ordinary life. Not that he ever really lived an ordinary life, right? That desire to be just like everyone else. So it is that Israel can also be likened to a people who struggle with their identity as a set-aside people. That set-aside meaning sanctified people. In fact, we get such, just such a representation of them as a whole in the life of Samson. Israel's own would-be superhero. Who, as it would seem, wanted to be just like everyone else. And marry the woman he loved and settle down. All this as opposed to being Israel's would-be saviour from the heathen nations. That was oppressing them. This makes the choice of who he wanted to marry all the more ironic, which is a woman from that very self-same oppressive nation. What you then get in the life of Samson is a kind of a half-baked hero on the level of an Inspector Clouseau. Those of you who remember Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies. Who bumbles his way to fulfilling his destiny. 
He never intends to deliver Israel, but yet somehow manages to do it by the providence of God. I think we need to be honest here by identifying what makes the seemingly glorious life of a hero unattractive. One thing comes to my mind as to why someone would avoid such a role. And that is the isolation that such a role inevitably brings. When we think of what it means to be a sanctified people, we will likewise be challenged to deal with the implications of such a life that will call us to be set apart and even at times be isolated from the human company we would rather not do without. More often than not, it is not humility that makes us turn away from a closer walk with the Lord, but our pride for life. Oh, no, it's not me. I don't want to, you know, I, it, that's not my calling. It's what a, a regular life. And so often we try to mask that with humility, right? But really it's understanding the challenge. When we consider this more genuinely, this gives us lots of applications for challenges that we will face in our workplaces, our homes, who we date and marry. One of the things that come to my mind as I think about this is how often when we want to, quote unquote, be like everyone else, how we have to, especially in our work environment, dumb down my moral sensitivity. That temptation to laugh at that joke that you really know isn't funny. That temptation to go on an excursion that you really know you shouldn't go to. There is that challenge to say, well, I don't want them to see me differently from themselves. And it can come from that place of, well, I don't want to offend them. And sometimes under the false conviction, it's how I win them over. Obviously, there is a place for us to, again, as Paul would say, to become what another person is, to come alongside somebody. But again, that great thing that we tend to miss out, but yet I did not become what they are. So the similes move on to verses 9 and 10. Getting older but knowing, not knowing it. Becoming, as I like to say, mutton dressed like lamb. It's not just the fact that it's someone trying to act younger than they really are. So we have already stated as we've gone through this series relentless love of how Israel is in its past at this time. In other words, it's no longer in its prime militarily, economically. It has in the past, to some extent, been formidable, especially united together with Judah when, is, when, Ju when King David 
and Solomon were ruling. Israel really was a dominant power within the Middle East. But at the time of Hosea, this time had long passed. However, this reality of being past its prime had not affected Israel's pride and confidence that somehow they could pull off another spectacular comeback. So remember at this time, Assyria is at their doors, at their borders, taking land from them. And they didn't know what to do. This appears to me like the pride of an old boxer who overestimates his own condition and somehow makes the parallel mistake of underestimating the ability of his younger challenger. We're all familiar, isn't it, with boxers doing unlimited comebacks. <laughs> Feeling that the quality of boxing in this, in, in, in this modern age is, is not up to scratch, that somehow they can do They can do it all over again. But they're past their prime. (laughs) For this reason, we can never rule out another Rocky movie. (laughs) We must note here that the point that Hosea is making, though, is not that Israel could still succeed, if only it was back in the days of David. That it was still in its prime. Somehow that their own strength could see them through this. Israel had only existed by the grace of God and by that alone. What I believe is being represented here is that Israel's false belief that it is able to determine its own destiny was false. What is assumed in youth is that you have the whole of your life ahead of you. However, the nation needs to come to terms with being in their twilight years. It would appear that many nations, if not all, suffer the same form of myopia. That is that short-sightedness that struggles to come to terms with its best years being behind them. We're even seeing that now, isn't it, in our modern context of a Russia not understanding that it's probably past its military prime. Even places like Iran, who again from biblical times have said that you will not rise again. Are you likewise relying on a youthful resilience in order to get through your troubling times do you still feel that you're in your prime and you can handle this you can firm this and you can get through your own troubles what are you like are you like a dove in verses 11 to 13 headless fool running to anyone and everyone and even your would-be enemy for help Ordinarily, a bird in flight is considered to be a thing of beauty, as the Bible would use it. You know, see the birds in the air, their freedom, their beauty. But here, it's a picture of wasted energy, futility, and foolishness. 
The bird in this sequence probably represents the diplomatic contingent that would be sent to Egypt in an attempt to raise an army to fight against the Assyrians. Going to Pharaoh, can you help me out? We, you know, I have this Assyrian threat and, you know, well, you're a superpower. Why don't you go up against them? Maybe you can win. When that Egyptian army fails, as history records, they then go to Assyria once. They go, now go to Assyria. So now that diplomatic contingent is now sent up north. And, well, go to Syria, see if we can do something there. And that also failed. And they just gave them loads of money under the basis of, like, take this and go away. Not realizing that when you give in to bullies like that, as soon as they feel like they need to go and get some more change in their pocket, they just come back again. I know, where, I know where somebody has some money. Let me go back there. That's exactly what they did. History indeed teaches us that trying to buy off your enemy is only a temporary fix. Because as soon as they need more, they'll be right back. And eventually they will take it all. But even going to Egypt is also a problem because it was already mandated by God that Israel would be upheld providentially and not merely by military force. As stated in Deuteronomy 17. Let me just read that short excerpt of what Israel should have known about their commitment to God. Reading from verse 15, it says this, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So even within the context of them looking for help in Egypt, there was an error. There was an issue. Now we must not be misled into believing that God is against us being proactive in trying to remedy our problems. The issue here is that the dilemma Israel is facing with the Assyrians is not the immediate problem. It is a problem, but it's not the immediate problem as to why you're there. In verses 12 to 13, we get a bit more clarity as to what the heart of the issue really is. Firstly, God is bringing the net over Israel. In other words, God has, to some extent, using Assyria's invading the borders of Israel in order to captivate them and stop them from continuing in the lifestyle that they were continuing in, they were, they were living in. And firstly, God is trying to do this, to bring the net in order for Israel to be cornered so that they can address their unfaithfulness. That's the real issue. Secondly, they're unable to find deliverance 
from their, unfaithful, from their unfaithfulness because they speak lies against God. So in other words, the very thing they need to address, they don't believe is an issue. As the text says, they speak lies against God. So they like say, no, 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 this could never be from God. And because they speak those lies, they are unable to deal with the issues. We will not be able to find help until we are aware that there is a problem to be resolved. Are you looking at secondary issues in order to address them rather than what we call the primary issues? What really is causing your problems? As I've said before, it is unhealthy to think that all problems in life have stemmed from some spiritual conflict. Howbeit, you know, everything is a spiritual warfare kind of issue, be they from good or evil sources. And as I've also stated before, the inverse is also unhealthy, that the belief that the material world is all that needs to be concerned about. In other words, you know, no, there is no spiritual issues, only material issues. I think a good way to protect us, to protect yourself against both extremes is to be aware that all challenges in our lives are great opportunities to learn something about ourselves. What is God teaching me in all of this? What might God be addressing in all of this? Rather than, what's the name of the demon I need to tear down in order to get my victory? <laughs> Verse 14, cry for anguish, but no prayer of contrition. We're all aware we need <laughs> to improve our prayer life, right? So this will always bite. It's interesting to note here that the crying to the Lord is superficial and not from the heart as it states. A prayer life with recitation, you know, I know what to pray, you know, oh Lord, you know, Father, you know, Father which is, again, it's not, it's not about the, the recitation itself. But there's no relationship in it. There's no dynamism. So there is a disingenuous prayer for real needs. So you're praying for real needs. You know, Lord, I know I need to pray, but your prayer life is not connecting because it's disingenuous. The real needs for grain and for grapes are real needs. We need to eat, right? This recalls to me James 4, isn't it? That dysfunctional church community where people are quarreling with each other and they are praying but they don't get what they pray for because they pray amiss. Because their motives are not aligned. And this is exactly what I believe is getting at here. Genuine prayer cannot happen without the right motives to align you with God's will. It's always been able to confidently end our times of prayer and say... Yet, Lord, it your will be done. And say that from the heart. To give God the option that what I believe is the best way to address this issue may not actually be God's. I give God the room in order to be a person which he actually is. 
the gashing themselves reveals that they are trying to invoke the pagan gods. They're sitting and that's their form of prayer. They're gashing themselves and that's something that they do. But we see this more clearly in 1 Kings 18, don't we? Let me read um, this short excerpt from 1 Kings 18, verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. That is going to the toilet. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And this is the prophets of Baal. And they cried out aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. In other words, they were having a problem meeting the challenge of you know, getting their God to answer by fire. So they're cutting themselves in order to invoke the gods. Again, the problem is the direction of their prayer. There is, I think it occurs to me that sometimes even as we're praying and we're saying, Lord, that ultimately, even as we say, Lord, really the prayer is directed inwards. And it's really a projection of ourselves of, if I had all the power and if I had all the ability to do this, what would I do? And then you pray to that person. A manifestation of yourself or a God who thinks just like you do, but has slightly more power in order to get it done. And that's what Israel was doing with Baal. They thought that Baal fought like them. And so therefore, let's pray to Baal in order to get him to do it. So in life, we are not short often. And again, I I, I speak to us all here, isn't it? Not short of religious activity. You know, we might partake in the prayer meeting and all the rest of it in order to find answers. The issue will always be, fundamentally, where we are looking for those answers. You know, we can get ourselves involved in lots of activism as a means of connecting to God. But really, you know, today, what might the modern day gashing of ourselves be? Well, I'm going to build a placard and I'm going to march on Parliament to get them to change things. I'm going to write a letter. And again, these are good things. But these might be the things that we put more effort into than really praying. And then we move to our last section. Again, what are we like? We're like a crooked bow. The strengthening of Israel's arms here is most likely a reference to God. God giving them the military might in order to meet out God's purposes. In other words, there was a point where Israel was indeed military strong, especially, as I said, under David. And they were able to take vast amounts of territory, even parts of Syria as well. And again, Syria was a, was a, was a, a strong nation even at the time of David. Yet God gave David the military strength to do that. And that's what he's referring to, that point where he had strengthened Israel's arms to be able to do that. However, rather than doing God's will, such as rooting out the pagan cultures, which is what that army was raised to do, to invoke God's, I guess, to police the nation, 
to turf out the pagans so that this would be a holy land. So remember, it's like the land itself was considered to be holy, to be at the temple of God, the new Eden, you might even say. And so therefore, the whole idea was to root out things in here. What would we say if we, again, had, I don't know, a pagan stall set up in our own church? Where someone was sitting there and they were doing their own thing and everyone's looking around at the men and thinking, why is nobody strong-arming this person and turfing them out and putting... That's why we've got the strength for. To be able to remove those people from the place where we say, we want a place to worship God and worship God alone. And we will not have any other pagan distraction amongst us. Go out there and you find your own space where you can do your thing. But as for this space, as Joshua would say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what that ministry strength was given for. Not so that they can build up a massive economy and, 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 and be you know, a, a formidable nation, but that they would do the will of God. But however, rather than doing this, which is rooting out the nations, instead they used it against God's interest and protected themselves in their sin. So now rather than using it to do the will of God, we're now doing it actually where you see within the context of the northern kingdom in particular, where they actually even take up arms against the prophets of God and start to root them out and start to kill them. This is obviously what Jesus illustrates so well in the gospel about the the vine, the vineyard being sent out to um, other people who, again, as the Lord sent people to come and take off the crops of the vineyard, they killed some. The arms that they had, the, the strength that God had given them, he was, they were now using it against the people of God. So again, this is the issue that the Lord raises with them that the strength he had given them, they had now become a crooked bow. Rather than now doing the will of God, now it was no longer aimed at doing God's purpose. It was now aimed at doing what they wanted to do. And so therefore, God has no choice but to reduce that military strength to save them from themselves. We also receive strength God in the form of talents and abilities that are supposed to be aimed towards God's goals. But often enough, these talents become crooked, turned towards more personal goals that no longer have the same target in mind as the Lord. You know, we all can begin, isn't it? You know, and you know, oh, my car is for the Lord, I'm going to use it for the Lord. And, you know, we've all been there. Some of us have been there, right? And we get it, and then we get a really nice car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bro, you're not going to eat that in the car, are you? <laughs> we all have been there, and we can laugh, because again, that's what this is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring up the irony of how we can say, Lord, we're going to use the things that God has given us for your glory. 
And before you know it, the God-given job becomes the thing that keeps you from the community, right? I don't have the time anymore. You know, one of the things you can marvel about, isn't it, is, uh, is, you know, especially in modern American music, isn't it, is how many of these famous singers began in the church. How much of our talent now has kind of said it's been developed within the church community and then ends up putting money in um, Simon Cowell's pocket. Quincy Jones's pocket. You know, you name any big record executive, and it's just making them money, building their kingdom. That's called a crooked bow. The thing that God strengthens you to do is now no longer aimed at doing God's will, but doing what you want to do. What are we to make of this? Well, what are you like? Are you struggling with accepting your identity as being a sanctified people? Or are you under the illusion that you can still set your own course in life by um, a mistaken notion that you are still in your spiritual prime? In other words, you know, I'm kind of mature now. I, I don't really need this church commitments as much as I do. I'm kind of kind of more of a free spirit now. Turning more into a church at home kind of guy. I really need to rely on those, the community of the saints as much. Are you trying to settle your problems by only addressing them direct, them indirectly without considering what they may actually be directed you towards. In other words, are you just believing that, you know, my boss getting in my face is just, just, Lord, remove the boss. Is the boss maybe addressing an issue in your life? I have to say this in, in, a, in a sense, and I, I, again, it's an example that I've, <laughs> we have to use. I remember um, when I was working in Boots Warehouse years ago, years ago, um, there was a young Christian guy, again, at a time where lots of, you know, the Christian rap movement was kind of really big and lots of young men were being attracted. And um, this guy was coming, you know, this young guy was coming in and, and he'd come in late. He was always coming in late. And um, he was using the whole idea of, oh, you know, I, I met somebody on the road and I was witnessing to them and all the rest of it. And, you know, now I've got the manager on my case. You know, what is it? Why can't he? And, you know... <laughs> I was trying to say, you're coming in late, brother. <laughs> you know, you're, you're coming in late. The, the, the problem is not the manager who's in your face. As much as the Lord has, by the grace of God, given him enough clout to come and say, you need to address this. And so often we can be a stake that the problems in our life are not really the real issues. Are you understanding the real issues in your life and able to direct yourself to them? 
Are you getting distressed by the problems of not having the basic necessities of life, but all your energy goes into whining to friends, making official complaints to companies and organizations, going on rallies and demonstrations without actually making prayer your fundamental priority? You know, think about that picture, isn't it, of the guy on their bed driving around. It's, are all your energies into those things? I'm just going to whine and moan about it. Again, as I said, like modern day gashing ourselves, isn't it? And never really addressing the issue. When you consider your outlook on life and your goals, do they align with God's? Are your talents, treasure, and time still aimed at performing his will? Again, there's some things for us to consider there, right? What are we like? Amen? Let's pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.